into the abyss so you don't have to this is hell and due to the events that transpired last night during stupid tuesday we thought what better time to talk about the melodrama that is the soap opera today on this is hell soap operas are the worst of the worst and therefore as they're so lowbrow we might as well completely ignore their stupid stories and dumb characters that do nothing but reinforce backward stereotypes of women especially women and people of color but what if soap operas not only help transition television to, into its own art form as the dramas move from radio to tv in economic reality soaps were the original foundation for any success tv would have as they were cheap to make and in volume attracting large audiences who would get hooked on serial programming that was the brick and mortar of the television industry at their height in the early 80s the most watched episode of a daytime soap had more viewers that year the year it was aired than any primetime series had each week the number of people who watched an astonishing 30 million people watched that single episode would have been more viewers than any non-sports programming in 2019 that's how huge it was and it's not only how big of a deal soaps have been for their viewers over the 70 years they have been in production it's how they have guided our understanding of gender and social identities and because of the need for conflict there's also an opening for dissent dissent that challenges the conservative norms of many of their viewers we'll find out exactly how much impact soaps have had on us as a society as a culture and within how we define gender when we speak in a few with Elena Levine. Elena Levine is author of her stories daytime soap operas and US history. This week's question from hell is what does your startup that you are pitching us do? What does your startup do? You can leave your answer to this week's question from hell at our Facebook page facebook.com/thisishellradio. You can direct message it to us via Twitter at thisishellradio or you can email it to either of us at chuck@thisishell.com at or alex@thisishell.com. The person with our favorite answer to this week's question wins the book we are featuring on today's show. or on yesterday's show we featured it yesterday uh Rob Larson's Bit Tyrants the political economy of Silicon Valley Alex do you have any more answers to this week's question from hell why break into a fast sweat What does this startup do so what does this startup do Scott W says a company devoted to occupying other companies conference rooms to make it appear to the clients that they are engaged in thought leadership for synergies relating to building sustainable solutions for the future My M says this ingenious startup uses the same energy of the future to power the needs of the past and shape a world we can live in today. Pulling out my best booty uh, Pete Booty impression for this one. Mark A says Mike A says they dovetail spitballed ideas to disrupt something. Yuck. <laughs> 
What does this startup do? So what does this startup do? John T says, Blueberry Gamers Association. They are creating a player experience that involves rolling blueberries off a stack of pizza boxes into an ice cube tray. <laughs> Refer to the diagram on the whiteboard. And he uh, actually, I guess in that picture, if you zoom in a little bit, it kind of looks exactly like that. <laughs> Walter M says, teach people to stop looking at their smartphones. Chris H says, burns VC cash on blow hookers and Moby records. Uh, Aja, G Aja K says, trying hard to be some kind of fruit other than Apple. Mike M says, we take DNC money. Justin M says, <laughs> uh, Mike, uh, Justin M says, this startup kills fascists. <laughs> and Aaron B says, what would it like to do? Just give me money. Um, what is the bio for Ilana on Elena? Elena. Elena. Jesus, I am so sick right now. Elena on uh, Duke University Press. That's where I got this from. <laughs> so, oh, you might have just had the Twitter account wrong. Right? Yeah, that might be it. Uh, it's E-E-H-E-H-L. E-H-L. E-H-L at E-H-L. And uh, Elena Levine is a professor of media, cinema, and digital studies in the Department of English at the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee. No, what? that's not the one I have. Okay, uh, let me write that down for you. Yeah, please do. Thank you very much, sir. Thank you. Last night, oh, I, while I was sweating through a feverish night, CNN was all smiles as they were reporting that yesterday voters voted for the person who they thought would most likely beat Donald Trump and not the person whose politics represented them the most. Think about that. CNN and MSNBC and all the networks were happy that voters in a democracy were not voting for the person they wanted to be president. They were voting for the person who they didn't want to be president, and this filled every network with glee. The establishment media got their establishment candidate, who will lose in November, and the establishment gets four more years of acting as if they were are indignant about the outcome of the election. Marchers will come out and protest Trump's second term without a single policy other than allowing Trump to jerk their chain, jerk them all over the place by their chain, pulling them in this direction and that direction as they define themselves, not by who they are, but who they are not, completely allowing Trump to dictate the political discussion and debate. CNN and their ilk convinced viewers Bernie Sanders was a socialist. Establishment network moderators framed questions and debates against Sanders, as was reported at Fairness and Accuracy in Reporting, and somehow they got people to believe Joe Biden is a moderate, despite Joe having an awful record on the war on drugs, consistently voting for cuts to Medicaid and Medicare, supporting ideas like the privatization of Social Security, supporting wars and tax havens for huge corporations, yet opposing a woman's right to choose. Yes, that's the safe moderate they say can beat Donald Trump. Biden will not win in November. Donald Trump will win a second term. I sadly predicted this at the height of the Russiagate debacle, which I said would not lead to impeachment. I hope my prediction does not come true, but I also hope I hit the lotto last night. That reminds me. Let me check. Okay, 6, 18, 19. Damn it. I only matched one number. This is hell. We got some email this week at Chuck at this is hell.com. After my rant on Monday about MSNBC and the constantly repeated question that the media is asking people on the street, are you voting for the person who best represents you in this presidential primary or the person who you think can win? which is the most loaded question I've heard in a very, very long time, and how James Carville believes betting lines are an accurate representation of reality, which they are not, nor is that the intention of betting lines. Right after I talked about all of that, we got this email from Gidden. Hi, Chuck. Listening to your opening on MSNBC and James Carville inspired me to come up with this little knee slapper. 
what do you what do you call someone that swallows up everything the mainstream media offers up for consumption? Um, an MS imbecile. MS imbecile. Thanks for bringing the noise. Unlike Flava Flav, Giddin. More sad news over this weekend. Public Enemy has booted Flava Flav, who is reportedly moving to Switzerland to begin a career in clockmaking. The best of luck to you, Flav and Giddin. MS Imbecile is good, but I like warp for white, angry, rich people because they warp society. Steve also sent an email to Chuck at thisishell.com writing, Yo, Chuck and, and or Alex, I am yodeling. This is an intense email. You gotta listen to this. I am yodeling to you from Bentonville, billionaire Bergville, Arkansas, hometown of those Waltons, not the TV Waltons, a new 300-acre low-price always campus rises to house the managerial class devouring the culture of the original Arkansas hillbilly Ku Kluxers. I saw a green clagon in 1974 on the lawn of our socialist courthouse, which reads Sovereignty to the People, a rare hangover from the FDR Capitalist Salvation Program. The annual shareholder Lollapalooza brings Walmartians from every store to receive the anointing of the spirit of Sam at the phony mock original Walton Five and Dime store, which unfortunately enough lies directly across from the Dixiecrat statue of a Confederate officer who looks rather amazingly like David Duke erected. It was in 1908 by the Gray Daughters of the American Republic the United Daughters of the Confederacy. It is exhausting to live in the billionaire beating heart of capitalism. Chuck and Alex, this is hell. Squared. Sincerely. Wrangler Steve on Twitter, at Wrangler Steve. Steve, I don't know what to say. That's like the best email we have received in a very, very long time. If you listen to This Is Hell and you live in a hell like Wrangler Steve does, we want reports from you. It's time the world know knows what it's like to live in hangover country, and we always want to do whatever we can to get the word out about how us slobs who live between the coasts or on the most beautiful of coasts, the third coast, how we live on a regular basis, so we want to hear more reports from you. We've got some more email, and I'll share that with you later on on today's show. Coming up on This Is Hell, the soap opera's surprising impact and how we view our gender and social identities. More of your answers to this week's question from hell. I've got another listener's uh, email, another email from a listener to share with you as well. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-tooth radio show, live-streaming podcast host Chuck Merritt's producing Alex Jerry, your eyewitness to grief this is hell. Soap operas are often dismissed as low-brow pablum for the uncultured masses, but in reality, they have far more impact on how we view ourselves and our society than any of the highest-brow evening primetime programming has had over its history. Here to tell us what soap operas have said about the medium in which they are broadcast, the times in which they are being produced, and what they say about society gender and culture. Elena Levine is professor of media, cinema, and digital studi digital studio studies in the Department of English at the University of Wisconsin, Milwaukee. She is the author of the book, Her Stories, Daytime Soap Opera, and U.S. Television History. Welcome to This Is Hell, Elena. Hi, thanks for having me. You worked on this project for 12 years. That's a huge commitment. Why? And, that, and before that, you've been writing about this since uh, high school and in your college <laughs> dissertation. Why soap operas? Were you a fan of them as a media critic? Why soap operas? 
Yeah, I um, well, I started watching soap operas as a kid um, in the early 1980s when uh, the Luke and Laura phenomenon hit and everybody was sort of talking about it at that time. And I got curious about what was going on and I had friends watching it. And so I started watching then. So in some ways, it's been a, you know, a project in many ways my whole life. But um, when I went to graduate school and started to study television and issues around gender and social identity, I realized that soap opera was uh, a really important uh, cultural form that a lot of feminist scholars had looked to as a way of understanding uh, popular culture that's associated with women and that is, um, you know, often looked down on, but also speaks to a lot of interests and concerns that are typically uh, connected to women's lives. And so I learned about that kind of tradition of scholarship and uh kind of all along thought, well, I think I might want to write something about soap opera, but I'm not sure what it is, and I'm not sure how to do it, given how unwieldy the subject is and how many episodes there are. But I decided, um, you know, a little ways into my career as a professor after I was, you know, long, done with graduate school that I really wanted to try and delve into this project and spend a really long time doing the research for it. So I did other kinds of projects along the way within those 12 years, but I kind of consistently was researching this project so that I could actually, you know, end up writing this book um, that was really trying to understand the history of the form of, of daytime soap opera and putting it really in the context of all of American television history and understanding how formative and foundational it's been. You write that in Robert C. Allen's 1985 work, Speaking of Soap Operas, and that pioneering work emerged in the 1980s alongside other strands of scholarship that considered soap opera scholarship that initiated the cultural analysis of television as an academic field. So the beginning of cultural analysis when it comes to TV was through soap operas. Why soap operas? Why do you think that that led to the beginning of the cultural analysis of TV? That's a great question. Um, I think that soap operas read to many people in the 1980s as the kind of best example of a purely popular form. And by popular, I mean of the people. Um, when we talk about popular culture today, we tend to think of that as, you know, a very commercial, uh, you know, phenomena. And of course, soap operas were then and still are that as well. But they also seem to be something that was sort of a little bit flying under the radar and really connecting with their audience's everyday lives. And so one of the ways that scholars started to study television, particularly from this more kind of cultural analysis perspective, was to think about how television played a role in the everyday lives of its audiences. And soap opera seemed to be one of the best examples of that because it had such a connection with a particular audience, largely a feminized audience. And it also seemed to not be the kind of thing that anybody was paying attention to because they thought it was um, particularly serious or particularly artistically sophisticated, but at the same time, it was incredibly meaningful to audiences. And so I think that interest in audiences really uh, connected up with what was at the time an incredibly popular form of soap opera. And uh, that really kind of instigated that. I should say also, this was a kind of transatlantic interest. There were definitely scholars like Alan in the U.S. doing this, but in the U.K., there were also a lot of feminist scholars who had been primarily interested in film and started to want to think critically about television. And uh, 
the feminist scholars who'd been interested in the kinds of films that were associated with women started to say, well, wait a minute, there's this TV form that's also really associated with women. Maybe we can understand that as well. And so it was kind of this sort of transatlantic interest in a form of culture that was associated with a you know generally kind of subordinated group in the society, in both societies, um, in Western culture more generally, and in seemed kind of a, a ripe space for understanding how television really engaged with people's everyday lives. Well, doing research for our interview, I found a 2014 article with the headline, The Death of the Soap Opera, which was at a website I've never heard of before called ladyclever.com. <laughs> the story was written by E! Entertainment uh, Digital media editor Kamala Kirk. And in the 23 years, seven months, and two weeks since we started doing this show, I can guarantee you this is the first time we have ever cited any writing by someone who works at E. That said, <laughs> Harris writes, soap operas are a dying breed. They haven't uh, gone completely extinct yet, but as time passes, they're dying a slow, oftentimes drawn-out death. As of today, there are only four remaining soap operas on TV, The Young and the Restless, The Bold and the Beautiful, General Hospital, Days of Our Lives. At one time, during the height of their popularity since their inception in the early 30s. There were 19 different soap operas on air in the 69-70 season. As the decades have passed, the amount of soap operas has gone down substantially. And in 2010, two more soaps were killed, which left the final four that exist to this day up to 2014. In your opinion, are, are soaps, soap operas dying off, as uh, Harris argues, because of the same competitors that all TV programming has from new platforms and technologies? Or is there something else as well that has led to daytime TV soap opera programming dwindling? Is it just the same thing that's affecting all TV programming? Or is there something unique to soap operas dwindling? I think it is very much the same as what's happening in general with broadcast television specifically. Um, and in the period between 2009 and 2012, when about half the soaps on air were canceled, bringing the number down to four, where we still are today. So I think the fact that since 2012 to 2020, those four are, are remain kind of speaks pretty well for their ongoing health. Um, but what the story of, of the history of soap opera shows us is that um, as goes soap opera, so goes American television, and especially American broadcast television. And so what happens in um, the early two, 2010s is that the impact of all of the changes that we've seen um, affecting television definitely for the last 25 years or so, but you know, even slightly longer than that, with first the rise of cable, and then, of course, the internet, and then increasingly the kind of commercial uh, uh, internet television streaming services. Those forces really did, um, you know, pretty significant damage to um, broadcast TV as a whole, and soap operas as this kind of very um, uh, foundational form of broadcast television were, you know, some of the first victims of that. I should say that that said, there's specific. Uh, developments in the cases of the shows that were canceled in that period that uh, might have, you know, kind of hastened those cancellations and sort of allowed the form to sort of shrink to where it now is. Um, one, two of the soaps that were canceled in that era were uh, created by and produced by the commercial goods sponsor, Procter & Gamble, and they'd been in the business since the radio age. Um, and they just really wanted to get out of that business and, you know, have kind of since been trying to figure out ways to continue their, their advertising using television-like forms, but 
kind of moving away from where they had been historically. And the other two were ABC shows and ABC, um, the ABC management at that time, I think, was kind of getting increasingly disconnected from the form. And so I think there there's specific things, but um, I don't think the form is gone. I mean, one of the most interesting developments is the way that so many narrative and storytelling principles of daytime soap opera have pervaded all of television now. And so perhaps it's its biggest influences in seeing that in the way that we, you know, all watch serialized narratives on streaming platforms and things like that is I think a good evidence for the long-term influence of soap opera. So I think that the 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 shrunken form that we have today with the four shows on air seems relatively stable. I'm hesitant to make any predictions given what's happened in the past, but I think that they seem to have found a way to kind of make the form work um, economically for the TV business. And so far they're sticking around. You know, I was going to ask how much impact did soap operas have on what it was to be a woman in the United States, but I think maybe the better question is what effect did soap operas have on what it was meant to be feminine? That is the more traditional mm-hmm. associations of what is meant to be female, including things like prettiness and delicacy. Did soap operas reinforce traditional femininity in an era of burgeoning feminism and equal rights for women campaigns? You know, I think that soap operas, um, especially in that era of, you know, maybe the 60s through the early 80s, were a really important space for kind of thinking about and discussing and weighing lots of different ideas and options around gender identity um, and particularly femininity, but also masculinity. Um, And it's sort of both. Um, to, you, to your question, there's lots of ways in which conventional notions of femininity got reinforced in the world of soap opera and continue to today in terms of an emphasis on, you know, heterosexuality and a in, uh, kind of primary interest in um, heterosexual romance and family life and childbearing and those kinds of things. Um, yes, that's so central to the narratives of soap opera. Um, but at the same time, particularly in that time period, there's a really interesting exploration of what it means to be a woman and what it means to be a man as well and what the limits of that might be and where there might be dissatisfactions for people in those experiences. And so you get, you know, soap opera characters in the 70s who are, you know, claiming themselves to be, you know, women's livers and saying that they reject marriage or they reject expectations around uh, pregnancy. Um, There's, you know, characters who assert their right to have an abortion There's, uh, you know, a lot of uh, shifting ideas about gender getting kind of explored and played out. And a key thing about soap operas is because the narratives don't end, right? They go on and on and on. There's never sort of a final statement on a particular question or issue. Um, The story continues. And so even though you may have characters who... um, you know, uh, end up deciding to commit themselves to conventional heterosexual, you know, romance and marriage or and childbearing, there may be, you know, the next week or the next year or five or 10 years down the road, that character might, you know, resist those experiences in some way and might question whether that is what she really wants. And so there's so many ways in which the, the story is more a kind of space of exploration of these questions than a kind of definitive answer one way or the other. 
And you point out how soap operas need this conflict. That's part of the important that's uh, the important part of the storyline. And that conflict can lead to presentations of dissenting opinions. How did soap operas balance that presentation of dissenting opinions with what they thought their audience was, which would be a very white, heteronormative, conservative audience? How do you balance having that conflict that brings up dissenting point of views without offending your audience? Yeah. Well, one of the ways that the soaps have done this historically and and still do in many ways today is that um, dialogue and conversation are so central to the form. And so what happens is they allow different perspectives to be given voice. Um, And so they'll have uh, um, characters talking about, um, you know, one particular perspective on an issue or a question about their lives and different characters voicing a different perspective. And so you get that kind of airing of different ways of thinking about different issues. So I'll give you a a quick example. I mean, this is an older example, but in the early 1970s, um, there's a kind of famous story on the show All My Children that the character of Erica, um, later Erica Kane, um, who people are probably familiar with, played by Susan Lucci, she um, is, is very, is young, but is married and finds herself pregnant and decides she wants to get an abortion because her, she wants to have a career as a model and she's not interested in becoming a mother. And the show told this kind of elaborated story of her, she was a kind of devious character, so she did some scheming and things like that to try to make this happen for herself. Um, but at the same time, she expresses over and over again that this is her body, that she wants to make this decision for herself, that she's not ready to be a mother, that she knows this is the right thing for her. There are other characters who are telling her, no, it's not a good idea, you shouldn't get an abortion, it's um, it's the wrong thing to do, or it's selfish, or you know, lots of different anti-abortion perspectives. Um, she goes ahead and does it, because she's not usually very uh, constrained by anybody, the character isn't. And even though there's um, some negative consequences for her, a lot of characters admit, you know, I might not have wanted you to do this, but you made the choice and you felt that it was the right thing for you and we need to, you know, acknowledge that. So a really interesting kind of space for the the airing of different perspectives. In that case, I think ultimately, you know, a, a sort of very soft form of support. But in general, the for for Erica's choice. But in general, the way that uh soap opera works is, again, because nothing is ever totally closed off in terms of narrative possibilities, there can be that opening for things to change or for a different perspective to to play out. And so that really allows for different voices to get heard um, in a way that a lot of audience members have, you know, been willing to go along with for a long time, um, assuming a pretty, you know, a likely diverse, um, you know, audience group in terms of their, you know, their politics, their perspectives on the world and, you know, and literally diverse in terms of questions around things like race and sexuality. Um, you know, the industry long imagined their audience to be white middle-class you know, homemakers, but the audience has been way more diverse than that across soap history. So how much does, did uh, soap operas lead to, especially amongst even conservatives, the normalization and acceptance of issues on choice, on race, on gender identity? How much were soap operas, in that sense, uh, a vanguard in progressive attitudes across the country? 
Yeah, I mean, I think we have to be careful because I'm not sure that they, you know, they certainly don't cause, you know, progressive attitudes, but I think that they do contribute to um, certain people's ability to kind of feel more comfortable with certain kinds of change. Um, and in part, it's because they get to know these characters so well, and we feel so connected to them as audience members, that as characters come to understand or accept something, the audience might be encouraged to do the same. Um, I don't think the effects are that direct that, you know, this character says this is okay, so I'm going to say this is okay. But there are, you know, over, again, over time, over years and months and decades, there's that sort of gradual um, acceptance of a changing society that kind of happens without people necessarily being aware of it. Um, and that you know, that again happens through that long-term in-depth engagement with characters who change over time, just like the world changes over time and the audience changes over time. So we know that in the 1950s, 60s, 70s, 80s, I mean, you can keep going on, uh, television was, and you watch any of those shows, very racist, sexist, misogynist, patriarchal. Were soap operas as well, or were they ahead of the game when it comes to comparing them to evening primetime programming? Yeah, I mean, and I think it's different for different kinds of um, identity categories. Um, soap opera was historically very poor in terms of its representation of, um, you know, non-white racial identities. Um, in the 1960s, like much of television, there started to be a recognition of, oh, wait, maybe we should have more characters of color um, on TV because, you know, the influence of the civil rights movement had made people aware of how limited so much um, popular representation was. And so there starts to be some um, experimentation with that, often very kind of, um, you know, kind of uh, side characters, not very significant, not very central to the narrative. But gradually, you know, but there isn't a period in the 60s um, and early 70s where you get a little bit more attention to non-white characters. Um, and that kind of waxes and wanes over time. Um, and it you know, is not is is a pretty poor record overall. Although again, there are some particular examples that are quite interesting in that regard in terms of racial representation. Um, sexuality also a very limited um, willingness to engage with non-straight. Uh, sexual identities in the history of soap opera um, until about the 2000s. So I think sexuality is actually one of the interesting places that soaps take longer to get to than the rest of television and, and popular culture. Because I think in the 90s, you start to see a lot more experimentation with um, LGBT representation in primetime TV, and it comes more slowly to daytime. It's one of the few places where daytime is I think lags behind uh, prime time rather than being alongside it or coming before it. And I think that is in large part because of the centrality of heterosexual romance and marriage to so many and, and reproduction to so many soap opera plots. Um, and so it really takes until the 2000s for them to sort of figure out like that they could tell stories about non-straight characters that would engage some of the same kinds of questions. Um, so that, you know, those are not great um, uh, records for the form. Um, I think questions around gender identity are different because that's always been sort of the central focus. And I don't mean, you know, non, I don't mean, um, trans identities or that kind of thing, although there have been cases of trans characters on soaps. Um, I mean, you know, cisgendered identities and the ways that they um, explore what 
soaps have explored really always what those identities mean and what it means to be a cisgendered um, woman or man and how expectations around gender shape those kinds of things. Again, not in a necessarily radical way, but in a way that allowed for a space to explore those kinds of things um, as opposed to just kind of taking them for granted. So that is, you know, I think really the main way in which soap opera has kind of pushed boundaries in thinking about identity is, is really around questions of gender. You're right. My focus is especially on femininity, albeit in juxtaposition to masculinity, a femininity mm-hmm. that has often been imagined by TV creators as white, middle class and heteronormative, but which gets regularly complicated, even fractured in the con- convolutions of soap storytelling and the investments of soap viewers. So do soaps have a history of reinforcing either white privilege or white supremacy? Um a white privilege, I would say. I mean, supremacy sounds a little bit stronger of a term than I think, because there's a sort of tendency, I think, in all of um, American broadcast television history to play to a, a middle um, and to try not to, you know, come out too strongly in any kind of political terms. And so um, the I think white supremacy would be too strong of a term, but I think privilege in terms of a sort of... Uh, assumption that whiteness is the norm and that it is, uh, it kind of speaks for everyone, that it's a universal identity as opposed to recognizing it as, as specific and, and partial and privileged in various ways. That's definitely, I mean, that's, that's kind of all of, you know, American popular culture for, for much of its history. Um, and soap operas are no different in that respect. Are the politics then of soap operas centrist? Do they strive to be non-confrontational, they strive to essentially not lose viewers. Yeah. I mean, and again, that is true of all of, you know, broadcast television, maybe a little bit less so today um, because their audience is smaller. But for so much of American television history, you know, there were three broadcast networks. Everybody who was watching TV was watching one of three, you know, networks most of the time. And so those were huge, huge audiences, especially in a country as, you know, big and diverse as the United States. And so that um, tendency towards centrism is, is, you know, prominent across all of television and definitely true of soap opera as well. But part of what that means is that it also becomes a space where you can have those, you know, kind of never too radical to in, in either direction, but always these sort of um, uh, raising of questions about uh, political perspectives, not electoral politics per se, but about particular issues, and uh, kind of opening up possibilities of, of different ways of thinking about the world, sometimes ways that are pretty pretty resistant or oppositional to the, you know, the dominant ways of doing things, and sometimes more um, more kind of conservative or um, uh, sort of safeguarding the way status, safeguarding the status quo. But, you know, they come together in that center, but there's these kind of brief forays into explorations um, uh, of the dimensions of particular political issues from time to time in a way that, um, you know, again, resolves towards the center, but is, um, you know, is not entirely apolitical, I guess, is is the way I would put it. 
We are speaking with Elena Levine. She is author of her stories, Daytime Soap Operas, and U.S. Television History. You can follow her on Twitter at EHL. You write that soap opera was also a central case, as you are pointing out earlier, in the emergent field of uh, British cultural studies, a frequent example of popular television culture among scholars in the U.K. studying British soaps and those in the United States translating these ideas in a, to American culture in its serial uh, dramas. The British cultural studies work on soap opera intersected with efforts of feminist film scholars to examine television to consider how the domestic medium might speak about gender in ways different from the dominant male gaze of Hollywood film and in ways like or unlike other forms associated with women such as melodrama and the women's film. How is the male gaze, how is that objectification and sexualization of women different in soaps from other mediums, from what they are in film? Is there that much of a difference? Well, I think there is in that, um, you know, even the in the in the structural forces that um, uh, shape the way that the object itself ends up looking. So, you know, daytime soap operas are shot with multiple cameras in in TV studios, um, which changes the kind of shooting style and what's possible than when you have like a single camera shooting a feature film. Um, and, you know, um, especially in like classical Hollywood movies, you have these shots that are, you know, clearly um, meant to draw our gaze, our look to the women, woman on the screen um, and the way that she is lit and the way that she is framed uh, um, encourage us to, to look at her as an, as an object. Um, and, Soap operas just do not do that as much because of the fluidity of the shooting style and because of the fact that they're, um, you know, they're lighting an entire set. They're not lighting, you know, uh, putting a halo light around one particular actress and trying to, you know, shoot her in a in that particular way. And so, just some of the mechanics of the shooting style change what is possible and how our eyes are drawn to images on screen. It is of course true that soap operas make um, their female characters look glamorous and that they're, you know, almost universally conventionally attractive and thin and made up and all of those kinds of things. Of course, that's, you know, that is not at all um, different. But at the same time, there's also um, quite a lot of attention to male bodies and um, kind of the turning the eye of the camera and thus the eye of the viewer onto male characters and looking at them. The importance of things like reaction shots in soap opera is really significant. It's kind of a, a kind of cliche stereotype of like the shot posed on somebody's face at the end of the scene as the music rises and you kind of get that, you know, how are they responding thing. But those faces are male faces as well as female faces. There's a kind of studying of the face. Um, again, the shooting style, much more attention to faces than to bodies um, because so much of it is um, dialogue and, and cutting back and forth between two people having a conversation. And so, you know, it changes some of these things about the style change over um, the history of soap opera, but they really um, are not oriented around encouraging the audience to look at the woman on the screen as a kind of sexualized object. Um, if anything, you more often see the man on the screen in that way, at least in certain periods of soap history. 
So a lot of people just think that soap operas have been the same this whole time since they were on radio, since the 50s when they emerged on TV, up until today. They haven't changed. They're just the same thing. Why is there this view that they do not evolve? How accurate is it to say that soap operas are still the same today as they were when they were on the radio? It's not really accurate at all. Um, obviously, there are certain features that that you know sustain over all of those years. Things like I was talking about, like the emphasis on dialogue and conversation, um, or the interest in you know uh, topics and subject matter that are conventionally associated with women or with femininity. Um, those things persist, but. A lot of things um, have changed about the production style, about the kinds of narratives that are included, about the the people who are included as part of the cast, um, what kinds of identities are part of the storytelling world, um, and, and even in a more kind of micro level, you know, I mean, especially from radio. In the radio days, there's um, more of a focus on a kind of single woman protagonist who's, you know, um, trying to, you know, like mop Perkins or something like that, trying to like help all these people around her that that are that are suffering or in trouble. And in television, it really shifts um, by really within the first decade or so on television to being much more focused on community and being oriented around a community of characters as opposed to a single female protagonist. And so there's so many of those kinds of shifts. There's lots of shifts in terms of the extent to which the programs uh, attend to social issues or not. Some periods of soap history, that's very a significant part of what they do. In some periods, it's not at all. Um, some of the changes we were talking about earlier about representations of non-white identities or LGBT identities, those things, you know, come and go in different historical moments in different ways. And that, that changes the kinds of stories that get told. So obviously, while there's some continuities across this long history, a history that's really like 90 years old, if you go back to radio, um, there's also, you know, lots of interesting shifts and changes over the years. There's also changes regarding, you know, the production style and the fact that, you know, they're sh they're still shot in in studios, but they are shot on HD. The shows look, you know, look quite good. They don't look that different from a lot of other, um, you know, television content these days because of the way the technology changes and things like that. And so you've got, you know, a, a million different ways in which the form changes over that 90-year history. You write that in the summer of 1973, 14-year-old Jane Marsh recorded her thoughts and feelings in the Daily Journal, including her reactions to her favorite daytime TV soap operas. She looked forward to seeing the gorgeous actor Joseph Gallison <laughs> on Return to Peyton Place, which aired on NBC from 72 to 74. But she worried that the program would be preempted by a different continuing saga... Watergate, labeled in her journal with the same quotation marks she used for the other stories she followed, like As the World Turns. What does it say to you, not only about soap opera viewers, but any viewer, when they perceive whatever they are viewing as entertainment, whether it's fiction or reality? What happens when everything from impeachment to uh, impeachment trials to soap operas become flattened and are seen and judged by nothing but their entertainment value? Yeah, I mean, obviously, we're living in a time where that is really um, pervasive, where you're right, you know, a reality TV star is, is the president, basically, and that um, a lot of the investment in, um, in him comes from, you know, people's experiences with him as, you know, a television character on a reality show. So, you know, that, you know, that is a, that is not, you know, in w any one 
single period of our history that that was the case. That's been the case in lots of different moments. Um, you know, I think in that example that um, opens my book, you know, she's a kid, she's a teenager at the time. And so I think that we have to be a little bit careful of taking her experience as, um, you know, that of the society as a whole. But this is a this is an influence of television on our on our culture and in our politics that's obviously much bigger than just soap opera alone. And it's it's a, a factor where we, you know, we become so accustomed to following narratives um, and uh, looking for certain kinds of conflict in the stories that we we watch that then we kind of expect them or look for those same kinds of um, trajectories in the, you know, quote unquote, real world, right, in the political sphere or things like that. Um, and so, you know, it is in, entirely, you know, um, accurate, I think, to say that at least in today's um, environment, that American politics is, functions like a reality show. I think it functions more like a reality show than a soap opera, although I think reality shows are largely influenced by soap operas um, in certain respects, at least. And so there's those, uh, there's those kinds of tendencies that definitely do play out. Um, I would be hesitant to say that that means that we're all, you know, being tricked or duped or anything like that. I think that most people are more savvy than that and understand something about how their own interests might not always be met by the kind of the quote unquote entertaining sphere of politics that is before us. But um, there's definitely ways in which our, our, our expectations and the things we pay attention to and what we are attuned to are shaped by that long history of our experiences of being entertained by not just television, but feature films and now through social media. And you point out that Watergate often aired in place of the soaps the week of June 25th as former White House counsel John Dean uh, testified before the U.S. Senate's investigative committee. Jane was resentful and intrigued in her journal. She writes, Watergate has been on all week. John Dean is testifying. I think he's cute. So are Senators <laughs> Howard Baker and Edward Gurney. It was, it was getting kind of interesting lately. It was boring before. Dean says Nixon knew about the cover-up. Dean's wife is very pretty. So she's alternating, as you point out, alternating moments yeah. of tedium and excitement, featuring attractive yeah. leading men and their love interests, plus the mm -hmm. revel, uh, revelation of closely held secrets. Watergate was familiar terrain for the young soap opera fan. Yeah. What impact is there on your view of reality when you place upon it the terrain of soap operas? And I want to make sure that uh, I think this is the case if you only watch sports, if you only watch mm -hmm. baseball, football, basketball, hockey every week, every day, that's going to have an impact on the way that you view politics. You're going to place that terrain upon uh, politics as well. But how do you, how does your view of reality change when you place upon it the terrain of soap operas? Right. And uh, yeah, I would definitely agree with you that I don't think soap operas are alone in this. Um, lots of forms of mediated entertainment that we engage in shape our experiences of the world. Again, whether they're masculinized spaces like sports or more feminized spaces like soap opera. So those definitely do um, shape our world and our culture. But part of it is that, you know, news media reproduce some of those same um, patterns and tendencies. And so when, you know, the place that we turn to see discussion and consideration of the real, quote unquote, real world of the political sphere, um, the fact that those spaces tend to reproduce some of the same 
patterns and tendencies and emphasis on conflict um, and, you know, winning and losing and those kinds of things. I think that that has an important influence too. So it's not just the, it's not just the things we consume as entertainment. It's the things that we consume as, um, as information, as news that kind of come between or mediate between sort of the, the world of entertainment and the world of um, real world politics. And so it's not just about, you know, the entertainment media, um, you know, shaping the way we understand the political world. There's a there's an in between there, which is you know news media and how that also um, has a big effect because it's you know purporting to represent that real world to us. So I do think that there's ways. I don't think these things are are, are a direct influence or that we or that most people are completely unaware of this. We understand the ways that we are looking towards. Um, the real world or the political world through certain kinds of lenses sometimes. Um, but it doesn't mean that, it, you know, but, but we have to sometimes, you know, step back and think about that. It does, it does lead us down those tendencies um, because we're so well acculturated to those kinds of entertainment narratives. You explained that I've found myself dwelling seemingly simultaneously in periods of the soap past I've lived before, such as 1981 or 1995. I've also become familiar with moments located in a past before my time, as in 1952 or 63 or 69. For soap opera, the past always matters, bearing upon the present and shaping the future. How does the past always matter for soaps? How does the past manifest itself within its content? Well, the thing about soap opera is that they go on for so long. They go on for decades, right? And so uh, the things that happened in the past um, sometimes emerge literally to the surface in terms of a story. Um, so, you know, there's, you know, sometimes, uh, you know, 20 or 30 years later, even you'll have a character emerge who it turns out is the child that we previously didn't know that two characters had had, you know, in a storyline that occurred 25 years earlier. And so there's that dimension of it, that the stories themselves, the writing is always sort of turning back to past events as kind of inspiration and and um, a way to spin twists on new events. But there's also the experience that a lot of audience members, especially now as the form has gotten older and the audience has shrunk, who have been watching themselves experiencing this for decades. And so they are drawing on their own knowledge and understandings and memories of characters and what happened to them in the past, even in moments that are not necessarily referencing that past or referring back to it. Um, if you've been watching General Hospital for 30 years and you remember when Luke did this or that in the early 80s, when you see Luke doing something in the 2000s, you might understand his actions through that lens of that long history that you know of the character. The stories are not always that internally consistent about, you know, the characters over so many decades um, because the writers change and things like that happen that that, you know, don't always make it that consistent um, internally. But the audience sometimes has been there all along. And so for them, they can read any any one character's actions through the history of that character or maybe through the history of that character's, you know, parents or grandparents that they may have been watching for decades as well. And so it's such a unique form in that way in that you get this sort of very long-term experience of characters and stories that I just, I do not think there's any other form um, culturally that allows for that. Are 
soap operas doomed as their uh, audiences age, as the number of soaps dwindle, uh, and as platforms emerge? Are soap operas doomed, or do you think that they're just going to expand into whatever the next medium and platform is? Yeah, it's hard to know. Um, I, you know, I think the form as we've seen it may, um, may not last forever, um, given how much has shrunk, but I'm not sure if, you know, broadcast television, if we've known it is going to last forever either. Um, it's sort of surprising to me that no streaming platform has either picked up old episodes of soaps to, um, air or has, um, you know, started a, an original soap. I don't know that they could do a daily, the kind of daily production that the um, has been going on in broadcasting for so many years. It's just not so different from the model of most streaming TV production. But um, I, I think it will continue in some form. As I was saying earlier, it, it already continues in you know the fact that we binge watch and that we need to kind of follow a story through episode after episode. It's just in a very shrunken um, form when there's you know eight episodes per season of a, of a show that we're really invested in on a streaming platform. And so there's ways in which that is already you know kind of expanded and turned into um, other kinds of um, television that we're already watching. And, you know, we'll, we'll see, um, there's some interesting things going on on the web where there's independent creators making soap like programs and distributing them independently. So it's kind of a, I mean, all of television is in some ways in this, um, you know, period of massive change. Uh, and it's kind of, up in the air about what's going to happen or how it's going to ultimately play out. But I think soap opera in some form will probably continue to be there. We have been speaking with Elena Levine. She is author of her stories, Daytime Soap Operas and U.S. Television History. You can follow her on Twitter at EHL. One last question for you. And as we do with each and every one of our guests, it's the question from hell, the question we hate to ask. <laughs> you might hate to answer or our audience might hate your response. This one's not so bad. <laughs> Meanwhile, uh, you know, as there, we see the uh, dwindling numbers of soap operas, telenovelas on Univision and uh, Telemundo mm -hmm. have huge popularity in South the Korea with it has its highly rated soap opera, Winter Sonata, China's Snail Houses, Huge mm -hmm. Turkeys, Newer, and my favorite name of any of the soap operas around the world that has immense popularity to this day, Afghanistan's Because a Mother-in-Law Was Also Once a Daughter-in-Law. It's <laughs> a great name for a show. <laughs> Apparently, soap operas still have popularity elsewhere. Is there something about U.S. culture that you think may have changed, leading to the declining popularity of soap operas? Has our taste in entertainment become more highbrow than it was in the past? Um, yeah, I mean, you're totally right about the the global reach of the form. I mean, it takes soap opera takes different forms in different parts of the world. The American version of daily episodes that go on for decades does not really exist anywhere else. There's some soaps in the UK that are um, most similar to that, but the telenovela is a much more um, contained form. You know, they usually last for um, a few months and then the story ends. Um, and so there's, you know, soap-like forms worldwide, as you say, that are incredibly popular. So in part, it's that the American form is slightly different than those, and um, it's hard to compare the two as a result. Um, I'm not sure that the, you know, the, the taste um, 
I think we've, you know, we've gotten a taste of a much wider array of television content in recent years. Um, there's just so much more television being made than was the case uh, in the past. So there's definitely more of it. I'm not sure that it's, um, it's a question of better or or not. I think that in the U.S. we just have so many options now. And the thing about television, though, if you if you study much of television history, you can see how cyclical things are. And so, you know, uh, uh, streaming platforms that kind of made their mark by having sort of um, uh, high status kinds of uh, programs that people thought were very you know artistically valid are now you know really invested in doing reality shows that people might see as a little bit more lowbrow. And so not, nothing is nothing is forever in television. Things change all the time and uh, things come back and things that you thought were done are resuscitated. And so I, 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 I'm pretty certain that that's the case for soap opera. It's just unclear exactly what form it's going to take. But the persistence of the popularity of soap-like forms worldwide suggests that, um, you know, human beings for all of our diversity do find some something compelling in that kind of storytelling. We have been speaking with Elena Levine, author of Her Stories, Daytime Soap Opera on U.S. Television. You can follow U.S. Television History. You can follow her on Twitter at EHL. Thank you so much for being on our show. This is a really fascinating book of a genre, a node, whatever you want to call it, of something that I had uh, absolutely no interest in watching. <laughs> but it was a, it's a fascinating history, and I really appreciate you being on the show. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Take care. Bringing you bong hitting journalism since 1996. This is hell. And by the way, if you're going to watch soap operas, strongly suggest that bong hitting. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap tooth radio show podcast and live streaming host Chuck Mertz. Producing this week's show is Alex Jerry. This week's question from hell is what does your startup that you are pitching us do? What does your startup do? You can leave your answer to this week's question from hell at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash this is hell radio. You can direct message it to us via Twitter at this is hell radio, or you can email it to either of us at chuck at this is hell.com or alex at this is hell.com the person with our favorite answer to this week's question wins the, a book that we featured earlier this week rob larson's bit tyrants the political economy of silicon valley and we we're talking about network effects and how different platforms and different devices depend upon those network effects you can see the same network effects happening within soap operas far before the genius of jeff bezos and bill gates alex do you have any more answers to this week's question from hell what does this startup do? What does this startup do? Joshua L says, looks like they are either working on an update to Moby's autobiography. <laughs> what is going on with Moby's autobiography showing up on these? Uh, Greg G says, hear me out. What if we just own the means of production? Oh, that's not an investable idea by those with the capital? Ah, uh, F. <laughs> Braden S says, it's a drunken sexual harassment factory with a Nintendo 64 in the break room. You rent the game cartridges. Pen D, past guest, says, well, you take a watermelon, and by pushing our patented stainless steel grid slicer through it, you have enough pieces to feed the world. <laughs> Good lord. Uh, Krimsky K says, turns you into the feds. Nice. Warren L says, mostly convince people that are broker than them to work, and those that are richer of them to invest. Sweet. Devin M says, make the Indiegogo accounts for other startups. Nice. Rich G says, gig sex, trademark, is not prostitution. It's more like Airbnb for your genitals. <laughs> Sweet. Roy Lien says, creates energy balls with its hands. Hmm. All right. Oliver J says, they want to find a way to make selling people legal again, but as a tech company. A couple more. What does this startup do? What does this startup do? Nick A says, it's literally a Swiss army knife. We just call it a tech startup to get some VCs to throw money at us. Sweet. Marco G says, a free app to stay sober, but the ads are about liquor, unless you pay. 
He does mean venture capitalists, not Viet Cong, right? I'm assuming so. Uh, Jeffy D says they make virtual rectal osculators. <laughs> Bradley R says it uses techno-utopian pseudoscience to fleece gullible billionaires out of their wealth. And then finally, David S, monetize anhedonia. Alex will have the rest of the answers to this week's question from Al, and we'll announce this week's winner on our show tomorrow, Thursday. Leave your answer to this week's question from Al again on our Facebook page or tweet it to us or, you know, whatever. Email it to us. You know the routine. Alex, who's on tomorrow's Thursday's live show streaming at 10 a.m. Chicago time at thisishell.com. Uh, writer Austin Brunyarski will be on to talk about his outline.com piece, The War on Food Waste. Sorry, The War on Food Waste. <laughs> is a waste of time. Efforts to reduce the amount of food in landfills produce a lot of pretty infographics, but very little change to a deeply flawed food system. This piece is really good and actually uh, suggested to us by producer Theron. Yeah, and Theron, we're going to be re- we're thanking all week. Theron is our engineer and he has been uh, setting up the new board. We tested it, Alex and uh, Theron tested it last weekend and they're going to be wiring it and putting it into the system for next week's show. So next week's show should sound a hell of a lot better. Uh, I'm your Bitter Blind Broke Cap Tooth Radio Show host, Chuck Mertz, producing this week's show. Alex Jerry, thanks to Alex, thanks to Elena. And we're going to be, like I said, thanking Alex, uh, Al, or Theron all week because this is really going to improve the sound of our show. The planet's on fire. So, yes, this is hell. Thank you for listening to This Is Hell. For more interview hell and to support the show, visit thisishell.com. <laughs>